Season 2, Episode 30, The Truth is at Our Fingertips. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department.
join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snow Files wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snow Files podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. The first official fingerprint card was developed in 1908. In 1911, fingerprints were accepted by the U.S. courts as a reliable means of identification. In December of 1911, fingerprint technology was challenged, ironically in Illinois, citing that fingertip evidence was a questionable new scientific technique. However, the Illinois State Supreme Court upheld the admissibility of fingerprint evidence, and Thomas Jennings was the first person to be convicted of murder in the United States based on fingerprint evidence. In the 80s, the first computer database of fingerprints was developed by the FBI, which became known as the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or APHIS. In 1999, APHIS became known as IAFIS, the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System. Over the years, the IAFIS system has evolved substantially. The first systems in the 90s were only able to search the 10 rolled prints on the fingerprint card. By the early 2000s, IAFIS was able to search against the rolled and flat impressions of not only fingerprint cards, but palm prints. And in 2007, the standards expanded to include an expansion of palm prints as well as facial and iris data. As of April 2021, the IAFIS database contains 156 million fingerprints. So now that we've had our little history lesson, what does that mean for Jamie's case? We're getting there, I promise. In 1978, 61-year-old Carol Bonnet was stabbed to death in his apartment in Omaha. Police collected latent fingerprints and palm prints from the crime scene. The victim's car was stolen and later found in Illinois. Police printed the car, but were unable to match the prints against local and state fingerprint files. The case went cold for decades. In 2008, Omaha police received an inquiry about the case, prompting a technician, Laura Casey, to search the prints against IAFIS. Several prints came back as possible matches, and Casey examined the prints resulting in a positive identification of Jerry Watson, who was serving time in an Illinois prison for burglary, just days away from being released. Police obtained an order to obtain DNA testing from Watson, and the DNA matched DNA recovered from the crime scene 33 years later. This is one of the countless cold cases that have been solved with the IAFIS database technology. Donnie Whalen was convicted in 1991 in Bloomington for the murder of his father, a local bar owner who was brutally murdered after hours in his bar. This conviction was achieved under then state's attorney Charles Renard, the same state's attorney who presided over Jamie's conviction. Donnie fought for years on his own to get DNA testing of evidence from the crime scene. 
One of the linchpins in his conviction was a palm print found on a pool cue linked to the crime. The examiner said definitely that the palm print belonged to Donnie. In 2019, Donnie finally got relief from an appellate court when telephone logs between the expert print witness John Dierker and Bloomington police officers revealed that Dierker had told police the match was inconclusive, although Dierker had testified to the opposite. In 2019, Donnie was granted a new trial based on the palm print issue as well as DNA evidence that did not put Donnie at the scene. Surprise, surprise, the same state's attorney's office that hid evidence prior to Jamie's trial hid evidence from Donnie as well. As we know from previous episodes, nine latent prints, Exhibit 4, were recovered from the crime scene. In April of 1991, an APHIS evaluation revealed one latent impression suitable for APHIS processing. Now we know from Freedom of Information Act requests that those nine latent prints contained in Exhibit 4 are from the following areas. 4A, inside glass door, suitable 4A1. 4B, inside push bar on door, not suitable. 4C, inside door glass, not suitable. 4D, inside door glass, too suitable, 4D1, 42. 4E, inside door frame, one suitable, 4E1. 4F, inside door glass, one suitable, 4F1. 4G, inside door glass, not suitable. 4H, entrance door handle outside, inside of handle, one suitable, 4H1. 4I, entrance door handle outside, Inside of handle, one suitable, 4I1. Additional note, 4I is duplicate of area lifted in 4H. Exhibit number 7. Six inked fingerprint cards and five palm print cards marked William Little. Exhibit number 12. Inked fingerprint cards and palm print cards marked Danny Hartley. I guess the glaring question is, Why didn't they print the counter, the shelves, the register, the safe, the storeroom entrance, and the alarm button? The following are the April 2nd, 1991 results of the ISP submission. Examination and Results Examination of Exhibit 4 revealed seven latent impressions suitable for comparison. Comparison revealed the two of the seven suitable latent impressions were made by the person whose inked fingerprints and palm prints appear on the cards marked. Comparison of the five remaining suitable latent impressions to the inked fingerprints of the above-listed subjects did not reveal any identifications. An IAFIS evaluation of Exhibit Number 4 revealed one latent impression suitable for IAFIS processing. An IAFIS search of the IAFIS suitable latent impression did not reveal an identification. The unidentified IAFIS latent impression has been registered in the IAFIS unresolved latent print database. Please advise this laboratory when the case is closed so that the latent impression can be deleted from IAFIS. Evidence Disposition 
The above evidence will be retained in our evidence vault and should be picked up within 30 days. Exhibit number 4 should be resubmitted in the event additional inked fingerprints, including those for elimination purposes, become available. If Exhibit 7 are Bill Little's fingerprints and palm prints, at the time, they determined that two out of the seven suitable for comparison are the victims, leaving five unknown prints, of which the ISP said only one latent print was suitable for APHIS. It appears as if it was entered into the database, but the last note states that Exhibit Number 4 should be resubmitted in the event additional prints become available, and indeed, they did. In September of 1991, they compared these prints to Jeff Durbin, but no match. It wasn't until 1999 they began comparing these prints again. They compared them to Susan, Jamie, and customer Jason Hurst. Oddly, they never compared them to the obvious people, even if only for elimination purposes, like the cab driver, Martinez, Gutierrez, Dion Rhodes, etc. You know, people who actually said they were on the scene. And do you remember the letters Jamie wrote to the state's attorney and the victim's family in 1999? Katz had those printed to verify that Jamie Snow wrote the letters. Even though Jamie signed the letters himself, and they already had his obvious handwriting from previous letters. They also submitted Detective Dan Katz's prints for elimination purposes for the letters. Not sure why they did that. Total waste of time. In any case, they never found any matches to anyone. However, they did find candidates on May 28, 1991, but we don't know who those are because they are redacted. Those are the last candidate hits we are aware of. Which brings us to the DNA motion. Workman was added again. We recently acquired the transcript from the DNA hearing from November 7, 2008, in which Assistant State's Attorney, now Judge of course, talked about the availability of the evidence. With regard to the fingerprints, the following is an excerpt from that hearing. Workman begins. There was also some discussions in this motion about fingerprints. I would also indicate to the court and to counsel on the fingerprints, on the processing of those fingerprints, specifically whether or not they would be put into APHIS. Back in 91, when these prints were taken, they were put into APHIS. And because this is a homicide case, those prints were never removed from APHIS. So they've been in APHIS the whole time. They are constantly generating some kind of match to see if there is a match to these fingerprints. So that part of the request is, actually, has been complied with since 1991. It's still in there. It's an ongoing thing. The court. Well, I think it's. That's the only part of the request. I'm sure Ms. Thompson wants a report on that to show that. But I think if you can generate that, that probably you're right, would satisfy that. Mr. Workman, I think I can. I talked to the same individual that did the, on the fingerprint analysis. Chris Jacobson is the individual that I spoke with, and he's the one that actually did the work on the original prints that were submitted. The court. All right. Mr. Workman. He's still there at the crime lab. The court. And then you can. You can resolve the fingerprint issue because you can get a current report as to the... First, you've got to identify those exhibits, I guess. 
but that they have been run by the lab, so at least that part of the request could be granted and complied with then. Correct? Mr. Workman. Correct. The court. All right. So, Miss Thompson, what's, what are you suggesting we do, given all of this information? In terms of the fingerprints and APHIS, as your Honor suggested, there can be a report from, from Chris Jacobson, or if Chris Jacobson is willing to speak to me about these issues, I am willing to talk to him or her in person, to determine what the issues are, to satisfy ourselves so what we are seeking has already been done. Mr. Workman. Additionally, I would actually also point out that the fingerprint portion of it, looking at the motion that the defendants filed under page 4 on the exhibits, or actually I guess it's exhibit 4, the second paragraph indicates that the APHIS evaluation was done, and it continues. So I mean there is actually already a report there that shows the fingerprints are put into APHIS, and they remain there for verification purposes. The Court Yes, I think all I would want to see if I were contesting the issue is something from Jacobson indicating how often they run it and the last time they ran it and what the results were. And I think, I don't know there is much more you can do. I didn't realize that that was a continuous process when they when they put them in, which is probably a good thing. Mr. Workman, I didn't realize that either until I was, spoke to Mr. Jacobson. Miss Thompson. And, Your Honor, one point on that. I guess if it is going to be a report from Mr. Jacobson, I would like to know how often they intend to continue to run that in the future. The court. Yes, so would I. If I were getting it, I would like to know that too. So hopefully Mr. Workman will have that explanation put in there. I think it's good to know, whether it's annually or how often they run the unknowns. Mr. Workman. I. I will find out for sure, Your Honor. But I think it's just those prints are in the APHIS system, and any time a new print is put in. The court. It checks for a match. Mr. Workman. It checks everything. The court. Which means it's happening daily. Mr. Workman. Continuously. The court. Well, that's fine. Mr. Workman. But I'll get that in writing. So, there are a few issues here. First. Workman speaks of fingerprints, as in multiple prints, being constantly run in APHIS since 1991. Only one print was found suitable for APHIS comparison in 1991, and that was the only one submitted. Second, it is not clear that one print that was suitable for APHIS was kept in the database. The last potential matches were obtained on May 28, 1991. Additionally, The note at the bottom states the print will be removed if the crime is solved. Jamie was convicted for this crime in 2001. So was that print removed? And of course, we can't leave well enough alone. So we started asking questions. We filed a Freedom of Information Act request in 2015 with the FBI, asking specifically for information about that print, including print identifiers, dates the prints were run, dates they were removed from the database, and dates each individual print was run. The FBI responded there were no records responsive to our request. In other words, prints related to that crime are not in the IAFIS database. Okay, that's strange, but just to be sure, 
we sent a Freedom of Information Act request to the Illinois State Police with the same request. They responded that no further information was available beyond what they previously sent us, which were the hits to potential matches from May 28, 1991, which tells us the print has not been run since May 28, 1991. So what was Workman talking about in court before the judge in 2008? Where did Workman get that fingerprints have been run continuously for 17 years at the time of his statement, when neither the FBI, who manages IAFIS, nor the Illinois State Police have no records of that assertion? And where are the documents, the proof, Workman stated in court that he would provide? This case is as muddy as the Mississippi River. And speaking of Mississippi, we have read mixed reports about obtaining DNA from fingerprints. So we consulted with George Skiro, lab director of Scales Biological Laboratory in Brandon, Mississippi. Skiro confirmed that although the chance of getting DNA from a latent printer smudge is lower than, say, blood, and there may be a risk of contamination from the brush or powder, it can be done. And in fact, he even suggested that if you can't get a suitable print to examine or submit, you should try to extract DNA from those samples. We won't know until we try, right? We look forward to your questions on this issue. We want to give a special thanks to George Skiro, who helped so much in clarifying the fingerprint and DNA issue with us. Please visit George's website, ForensicScienceResources.com, for vast resources and information on all topics DNA and crime scene related. And also to Michelle Ravel for putting us in touch with George. Michelle, we appreciate you so much, and you know more than anyone that it takes a village. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In this episode, we outlined issues surrounding the recovered fingerprints. We talked about a case from 1978 that was solved using the new IAFIS database and even presented a crime that happened in Bloomington in 1991 that was overturned based partially on the state withholding evidence that the expert in that case told them prior to trial that the match was inconclusive. In 2008, the state's attorney seemingly misled the court by alleging that multiple fingerprints were continuously being run in APHIS since 1991. And we also confirmed that DNA can be recovered from fingerprints. If you have information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. The only evidence we know came from the killer of Bill Little are the bullets retrieved from his body. What is the state of forensics as it pertains to ballistics? Can the bullets reveal the real killer of Bill Little? That's next time on Snow Files.